Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. Well, in two days, I'm going to be posting my first podcast for year 11. That's right, this podcast marks the end of my first 10 years of podcasting. And uh, hopefully there are going to be 10 more years to come. And I guess that I should let you know that I've been hearing that uh, iTunes has now dropped the salon from its listings. Which uh, seems kind of strange since there were so many five-star reviews there. But uh, anyway, uh, since I'm on Linux, I don't have access to iTunes. So if you happen to work there, maybe you could uh, look into it for us. Now, uh, before I introduce today's program, I first want to give a happy birthday shout-out, even though it's uh, almost a month early, (laughs) to Alan. And uh, you can thank Kirsten for that, Alan. Also, congratulations to Periscope streamer and fellow saloner, Dominano R., who uh, tells me that he met the love of his life through the salon. (laughs) I don't know the whole story, but I'm sure that it's interesting. So uh, now let's turn to today's podcast, which is the tribute to Sasha Shulgin that was held at last year's Burning Man Festival. This tribute uh, begins with George Greer speaking, and he'll be followed by John Gilmore, Rick Doblin, Annie Oak, and uh, then there's also going to be uh, several members of the audience who will uh, say a few words. As you know, uh, Sasha Shulgin died on June 2nd of last year, and on the 17th of June this year, 2015, had he lived, he would have been 90 years old. So uh, now let's join the Saloners who were on the playa at Burning Man last August as they record their thoughts about the greatest chemist to have lived during my lifetime. This is the uh, Burning Man uh, tribute to Sasha Shulgin. And uh, my name is George Greer. I'm a psychiatrist. This is Rick Doblin, president founder of MAPS, Annie Oak, Head of Camp Soft Landing and John Gilmore, drug policy reformer. <laughs> so I'm, uh, we're each going to tell talk about Sasha, I guess, a little bit. I'm going to start. I I because I met Sasha, I think, before any of you. I met Sasha summer of 1975, before he had met his later wife, Anne, in a, I was in a workshop at Esalen about psychedelics, and he was sort of an irritated, unhappy guy, it seemed to me. Really smart, talking about pharmacology, but just kind of like an edge, kind of a irritated, kind of angry edge to him. Next time I saw him was in 1980 when I approached him about uh, me making MDMA in his lab so I could use it in my practice. And he was with Ann, and he was really happy. He was a really happy person. And that was very impressive. And uh, he didn't know me from, <laughs> he didn't know me from Adam. So I just said, I want to make MDMA and use my practice. I've done the legal research. And he said, okay, well, we need, let's, let's take MDMA together and we'll talk about it. So the, my wife, his wife, we took MDMA, and we just had a great time. And um, they, um, they talked a lot about sex and uh, maybe a little more than I wanted to hear. Uh, <laughs> but uh, they were just sweet. And, uh, and the day we made MDMA, they had this procedure. Aluminum is a catalyst for the reaction. Uh, pipronil acetone and methylamine, I think. And so, so Anne says, okay, so I'll tear up the aluminum foil sheets. So she was, uh, she would tear one strip of aluminum and then tear it into one-inch squares one at a time, and there needed to be like 300 squares of aluminum. So it took a long time to tear 300 individual squares of aluminum. So I'm, I'm going to brag here. I had a, uh, an innovation was let's layer several sheets of aluminum on top of each other and we can make more than one square at a time. And they just thought that was just the most brilliant thing. (laughs) 
So in making the MDMA, it was it was pretty easy, and Sasha insisted on doing all the things that would dry your skin off, like letting acetone touch your skin. And uh, we spent most of the day doing that. And then it was only half of what we expected was produced, and he didn't know why that was. And I was I'd paid for all of his supplies. So the next day, he thought of something, I'll change the pH, and then the rest of it came out of solution. And we made 80 grams, and he did all the spectroscopy, pure MDMA, and used it in therapy, and it was great. Um, and we wrote it up. So the other thing I just want to say, just a few little little stories about him unrelated to that. They had a... They had 4th of July parties every 4th of July, and, and one year in 81, we went, and everybody's there, and he said, everybody come on over here, you know, and, and I'm talking to Ralph Messner, he says, like, they wouldn't get married, something like this, and no, no, they're going to get married. No, they had a surprise wedding at their 4th of July party, and their minister was a DEA chemist who was a close friend of Sasha's, and the ceremony was a Native American marriage ceremony. So to have a DEA chemist doing a Native American marriage ceremony with Ann and Sasha was pretty awesome. It was just fabulous. And there's a picture. Where are those pictures, Annie? From the... They're at the, at the temple. I took them to the temple last night. Oh, took the there was a black and white picture my wife took of Sasha at the wedding. It's in Lee's and he is just beaming with joy. Oh, that picture the black and white. is still on the altar in the tea house. Okay, in the altar in the tea house, you can see a picture of Sasha on his wedding day and see how happy he was at that time. Um, let me just think of a couple more things. I guess I'm feeling a little emotional now because I haven't really emotionally experienced grief about his passing. I haven't seen him in a long time and uh, been very preoccupied. But he was just... Uh, you know, after he was with Anne, I never saw him get irritated. He was relentlessly happy, uh, had relentless positive attention for whoever was he was talking to, but he also had some skills because people would come up to him with, you know, wild theories about, you know, like the Pleiadians are going to raise Atlantis and bring them the New Age or if DMT will interact with this receptor in your pineal gland and you'll experience, you know, all these weird theories. And he'd let him talk for a while, and he had two responses to wild theories like this. One was, well, why not? And that would just kind of stop him in their tracks, you know. Like they were trying to convince him, go, well, why not? He just, you know. And then the other response was, they'd finish, he'd go, and? <laughs> like, so what? Uh, so he was he was fun. He was funny. He was just so loving. And, and, and just a story coming to my mind. He would uh, have experiences at his at his. He would have parties, and I guess he would take LSD and be high on LSD. And he was on one of these parties at his house. He was high on LSD, and he got a phone call, and he picked the phone, and they said, "Where are you?" <laughs> and it's like, well, I'm. I'm here. So he said, well, you're supposed to be here at like the Bohemian Club doing recital of our string quartet right now. <laughs> so he said, okay, I'll be there in 30 minutes. So he just, I just took myself down from the LSD experience, drove to San Francisco, did the string quartet, it all went fine, played the viola, came back, turned myself back on and continued my day. And uh, he had skills I think most of us don't have. <laughs> one more story. The, one of the last times I saw him, he was a few years ago. He had just had a heart valve replaced. It was a, it was a Hefter reception. So he walks in with a cane. First thing he says is, Hi, George. Ann was going to sell my heart valve on eBay, but they already threw it away. So I'll leave you with that.
So this is a memorial for Sasha Shulgin. How many people here knew Sasha? Raise your hand. How many people read his books, know about him? Great. How many people have no idea what we're talking about? Okay. Sasha was a chemist who worked for Dow Chemical in the 50s, very sort of straight-looking kind of guy. He invented the first biodegradable insecticide in the world. Uh, Dow marketed this under the name Zectran, and they made a billion dollars out of it over the years. And, you know, it was the sort of thing that would break down in the environment after it killed the bugs instead of leaching into the waterways. And uh, so after that, Dow basically said, work on whatever you want to work on, right? We like your hunches. <laughs> and what he decided to focus on was drugs that affect the mind. Uh, he had taken mescaline, and he started making variations on mescaline and on other mind-altering substances by pulling away, changing the chemical structure just a little bit and then seeing how it interacted in his own mind. And in the course of that research, which started in the late 50s and went on all of his life till he died this year, he invented hundreds and hundreds of chemicals that had never been seen before in nature, tried them on himself. The ones that he thought were useful, he passed on to a small group of friends. The ones they found to be useful and not too hazardous, they passed on to a larger community. And some of those have gone on to worldwide fame, like MDMA and 2CB and things like that. So Sasha was the brain that first experienced each of those drugs. <laughs> and I can't say he was lucid up till the day he died, because I didn't see him that day. But I saw him within a month of when he died, and he was still sharp. He understood what you were talking about. He became a fewer and fewer and fewer words as he aged. Um, but he was always uh, happy to respond with a terrible and inappropriate pun. <laughs> and uh, let's hear from some of the other folks who remember it. Well, there's... Um there was a crucial turning point um, in 1992 where um, Sasha played a pivotal role in changing the attitudes of the FDA um, regarding psychedelic research. And what, what had transpired before that is that there was this um, incredible series of studies in the 50s and 60s, thousands of studies of psychedelic research. And then there was also, as we know, the widespread popular use um, and then came the crackdown. So in 1970 was the Controlled Substances Act, and all these drugs were criminalized. And then, sort of as inevitably happens, the research was squashed all over the world. And so for several decades, one of the most promising areas of psychiatric research was just completely obliterated. And there were a few people, like Sasha and others, that continued to try to develop new drugs he would try to modify. This was before um, the government had passed the analog bill that tried to criminalize every new drug even if it's similar to drugs that are already illegal. So he found a way to create legal drugs. He had a DEA license to do it. And he also had connections to therapists that were working in an underground way. And so when he would develop new drugs, they would be... Um, tried by himself, tried by Anne, tried by a small group of around 12 people, and those ones that they thought were particularly useful would then be uh, sort of moved towards the therapeutic community. And so there was this um, sort of vibrant but quiet and relatively small underground community that used psychedelic psychotherapy through uh, the 70s and 80s. And then, as we know, out of this community, some of the people said you know, this drug, MDMA, which had the code name Adam as it was used in therapy, that they could make a lot of money and a lot of people should have this. Some of these people were coke dealers and they got disillusioned with, you know, dealing cocaine and they thought, okay, we'll make it into ecstasy. 
and we'll sell it that way. And that attracted the government attention and then there was the crackdown. And so throughout this period of time, um, it was really unable to get permission to do anything from psychedelics. And so George actually and others, once the crackdown came, MDMA, the DEA tried to criminalize it in 84, and we had uh, a series of uh, different efforts to try to do the research in an above-ground way, and the FDA uh, said no, consistently said no. And finally, um, I had worked with Charlie Grobe, a psychiatrist, and um, we had prepared a protocol for MDMA for cancer patients with anxiety. And what we didn't realize was that in 1990 at the FDA, the group of people that regulated psychedelics was switched from one group to another. And the new group that now had the responsibility to evaluate psychedelics and marijuana, they wanted to see research take place. And so in 1990, they approved uh, DMT, a research project with Rick Strassman. And so Charlie Grobe and I submitted this protocol for MDMA for cancer patients. And it turned out the FDA decided that now that there was that they were confronted with these efforts to look at the therapeutic use of MDMA and other psychedelics, that they needed to decide whether this should take place and how. And so they convened two meetings. There was one meeting by the National Institute on Drug Abuse, and this was with all of the people that they had funded to do animal research with psychedelics. And Sasha had... Um, was invited to come to this meeting. And this was a meeting that took place the day before two days of FDA advisory committee. And you know they, they had invited people from the drug czar's office, people from the DEA, people from NIDA, and this FDA advisory committee. And what I saw Sasha do was just this incredibly courageous step. So during the, the day-long meeting for these NIDA researchers, and many of them were saying, that their research was becoming increasingly irrelevant because how do you know what the animal data means unless you can correlate it with human data? And the absence of human research meant that their animal data was becoming increasingly um, hard to interpret and in, in, in irrelevant. So during this NIDA meeting, um, they asked Sasha to give a talk. And so there he was with the DEA there, with the drug czar's office, and he gave a talk about the different drugs. It was on the structure-activity relationships <clears throat> between different psychedelics. And he described a lot of what he had done. And then he went this one step further that was kind of breathtaking, whereas he started describing what he and others knew from taking these drugs as to how they acted. And that was clearly not the way drugs are supposed to be researched. You're supposed to do... Uh, the animal studies first, and then you get permission from FDA, and then you do the human research. So he, Sasha made himself vulnerable in front of the DEA, in front of the drug czar's office, and showed how the research that was being done in humans was absolutely essential to understanding what these drugs did and how they worked. And then what happened was that there was... a sort of a vote of all these animal researchers that were funded by NIDA, what would they do? Would they uh, decide to vote in favor of opening the door to human research? Because that their recommendation was then going to be what opened the FDA meeting. And what it felt like from being in the room was that people who saw Sasha take this courageous step and put himself on the line, that it inspired the other people to say, yes, we need more human research. And they voted in order to do that, at some risk of them losing their grants if it went the other way. So it was a, this group courageous activity that Sasha was really the catalyst to make it happen. And then the very next morning, the FDA advisory committee meeting opened with the report from the NIDA meeting before. And when the National Institute on Drug Abuse people said, yes, we're in favor of resuming human research with psychedelics, that set the tone for the whole rest of the meeting. And the end of the, up of uh, the advisory committee said, now it's time to resume human research. And that's what's led the groundwork 22 years ago for the work that we're doing now, the work that Hefter is doing, 
with looking at therapeutic applications of psychedelics. And, you know, maybe it would have turned out that way even if Sasha hadn't been at that meeting, but it felt like that he really galvanized the others to take courage and to support the, um, the openness that he had made. And so from, um, from my perspective, I see that as the crucial turning point that's led to everything after and that Sasha played a major role in that and that he had the courage to, to do that despite the fact that um, there were you know, potential threats against himself from these people in the room. And, and we know that, um, as George mentioned, that Sasha had a friend who was a DEA agent, a DEA chemist, and that that person uh, you know, protected Sasha in certain ways. And it was only after that person uh, retired that Sasha's lab was raided and that he was um, sort of had to voluntarily give up his license. So Sasha was um, someone who I, I felt was um, a role model in a lot of ways because he also focused on communicating with the DEA. He communicated with the people on the other side. He wasn't just part of the sort of underground psychedelic community. He was out front, he shared information with whoever wanted it, and he did that you know, it was like when the DEA finally came after him, it was like irrelevant because he had done so much up to that point and had developed so many psychedelics and really helped energize the entire uh, field, this underground psychedelic therapy and the therapeutic use of MDMA. So he, he had this um, courage. And at the, the same time, there was a, um, you know, the humor... But he became a role model for me. How do you do what you're doing in the open with the people who are behind prohibition and yet stay true both to the whole range, to the underground therapeutic community, to the, to the police? And there, uh, you know, he would provide them reference samples for all the different drugs that he was making. And he just felt that this information should be free and he would share it with anybody. And I thought, and somehow he managed to balance. And uh, George also mentioned that he was at the Bohemian Club. You know, that's sort of the movers and shakers of American society. And he was there because of his music. And while he was there sometimes, he would try out different substances with different people that were there. You know, and captains of industry and captains of politics. And they would go for walks in the woods and try these different things. So he was like an emissary um, and, and did it in a way that was just re remarkable. Um, and then what I also felt that there was this um, decision that he made. Um, John mentioned about his books. And so what he, he, when he decided finally to write Picall, which was Phenethylamines I Have Known and Loved, and to release that, uh, and he and Ann worked a lot on that book, it was pretty clear that making that public, it was he did not want that information to be lost in any way. But it was pretty clear that as he was releasing that into the teeth of this ferocious drug war, that there would be some backlash. But he felt that as long as it could be made public and that this information wouldn't be lost, it was worth it. And so again, it was both his friend retired and he published Picall, and then came the raid on his lab. And he's continued to do other other books. Um, and I'll say the, the last thing that um, I'll say about him is that there was this uh, documentary. Peter Jennings made a documentary in 2004 called Ecstasy Rising. And it was the best documentary still that's ever been made on MDMA. It really took the people's stories of how they benefited seriously. And there was a lot of uh, concern at the network about how this would be perceived. And actually, the White House uh, had people call the president of ABC and tell him not to put the documentary on. And they decided to do it anyway. And that was sort of the turning point of the public perception of MDMA, from horrible brain-damaging drug to something that has a lot of potential. And then one of the people that worked on that documentary wanted to do a documentary on MDMA therapy. And there was this interview that they did with Sasha that, that sadly has never been released. They couldn't get the money to complete that documentary. But that there's one thing that Sasha said um, during that documentary that I, I think um, I said earlier during my talk that was, I think, how Sasha really looked at things. And I think it's kind of a lesson for all of us. And he talked about 
and it was a picture of him walking from, he had this lab at his house that was, um, at one point he tells the story that the head of the NIMH came to visit his lab. His lab was like a primitive alchemist's lab filled with spiders and spider webs, and he had a little fireplace in there, and he had a, all these bottles all over the place. And, um, and this fellow who was the head of NIMH said, you know, how come we give so much money to so many people and we get nothing and we give nothing to you and we get everything from you. <laughs> um, but what Sasha said, it was as he was walking down the path behind his house and being filmed as walking into the, the door of his lab, he said that these drugs don't give you a drug experience. They give you an experience of yourself that the drugs help bring to the surface, that these are human experiences and that there's something that we have all of as our birthright. And I think so many people who are sort of opponents and scared of drugs and prohibition, they talk about these things. They try to dismiss, dismiss and diminish the value of these experiences by saying that's just a drug experience. It's somehow or other artificial and fake, and it's induced by the drug, and there's nothing real about it. It's all a hallucination. And Sasha's view was just the opposite, that these are drugs that open us up to our own selves. They're just a window and a doorway into ourselves. And as he said that, he walked into the doorway of his lab. And so <laughs> it's beautiful. I, I don't know if you've seen that yet. Yeah, so hopefully one day that'll, that last interview will come public. So Sasha has, has been an inspiration for me and a, and a role model and someone who I think um, we will have to try our best to be worthy of the discoveries that he made and shared with so many people. My name's Annie Oak, and um, I knew Sasha the last uh, 15 years of his life. He was, for me, and I think for a lot of other people, uh, our psychedelic grandfather. He and Anne were the psychedelic grandparents we always wanted and actually had, those of us who were fortunate enough to know them and spend time with them and go to his... Easter parties and his 4th of July parties and his uh, evenings at his house. He started something in his house called the Friday Night Dinners and he would invite members of the psychedelic community to come and eat dinner at his house. It had some ground rules. People weren't allowed to get altered during the event or buy or sell anything. It was just a social gathering. It was a very social, very warm man. He was a beautiful guy. And he loved cheap red wine and bad jokes. He loved women a lot. He loved Anne tremendously. He was, for me, the best example I've ever seen of somebody who used mind-enhancing chemicals to make themselves not only open to all the possibilities in life and open to their own creative potential, but also open to incredible joy at every moment and great, deep kindness. He was a very kind person. He was kind to everybody. People who pestered him and asked silly questions wanted to discuss chemistry day and night. As Rick said, and, and as John and George have said, he experimented a lot on himself. He was the classic alchemist and the classic Renaissance man. He played the viola. He loved reciting bits of poetry. He, I think, spoke Russian, yes. Oh, he didn't speak Russian? Oh, I thought he did. And he was uh he was a man for all seasons and he he took his experiences and he he really used them to make himself into the most loving and wisest most creative person he could be. 
And that was very clear. He had a laboratory, as uh, Rick said, in the back of his house that looked just like the classic alchemist's lab, covered in spider webs and down a little garden path. And if you were fortunate enough to go to his parties, he would bring you inside and very excitedly draw what he called dirty pictures, drawings of molecules on his chalkboard and excitedly discuss with you the molecular structure of whatever substances that had caught his fancy at that time. He had boundless enthusiasm. He was a superb teacher. He taught for years in various capacities. His students loved him for his patience and his kindness and his generosity to share his knowledge. About eight, nine years ago, I founded an organization called the Women's Visionary Congress, a nonprofit that brings together women and their male allies, people of all genders who are interested in non-ordinary states of consciousness. And Sasha and Anne would come and they would just sit for a couple hours and do Ask the Shulgans. And you could ask them any question you wanted about anything, about psychedelics, about life, about love, about sex, about the universe, whatever, art, music, culture. And he had something to say about everything. Everything. When it became clear that Burning Man was the thing to do, he and Anne came to Burning Man for several years. They were here, and he was well into his 70s by then, I believe. And they, um, they formed a camp. And those of us who were working in some capacity, assisting others with challenging psychedelic and emotional experiences here in the playa, as we do here in the tea house, as is done on the zendo, the other side of the playa, we would come to him if we had questions about how to better serve people and he would always take the time he and Anne to answer our questions we'd say somebody came to us with this question or this difficulty what's the best approach and he was always generous with his knowledge and his wisdom P-Call and T-Call and the Shulgin Index are classic books and will be for a long time he liked to sit around and just chew the fat of Burning Man he did it all the time he would have been here with us, you know, doing the same thing right now. And uh, last night we did a procession to the temple, and we have a series of photographs of him that are in the temple that you can go to and leave your offering or leave a message for him and um, look at some of those photographs. And uh, it, was a, it was a sad Sad moment, but also knowledge that he had a lot of joy here on the playa with us as, a, as an old man. He, uh, he was very courtly. He loved Anne, as Rick said. And every time she'd come home, he'd go up to the car to greet her. He'd open doors for her. He, he uh, was very much the gentleman. And as I said, he was very fond of the ladies. And the ladies were very fond of him because he, he was the essence of the perfect gentleman, you know? Respectful, kind, sweet, funny, <laughs> naughty, loved dirty jokes, <laughs> but, he, but always in a joyful way. I saw him a couple of days before he died, and he was so peaceful. You know, he, he had, towards the end of his life, he had fewer words, but he listened a lot, and he was a really beautiful example of how to gracefully be a very old person and, um, and just listen, deeply listen. I guess when we're really that old, hopefully we'll be in a space where we just listen more deeply and perhaps we say less because that's just where we're at. But he really showed the way for how to be graceful, and loving and very present old person who never stopped being delighted by everyone he met and listening deeply. And if we're very fortunate, perhaps we'll take those lessons to heart when we're old people. In his, and um, 
when I saw him two days, a couple days before he died, uh, he was very calm. He was very, very, um, very present, but not speaking. His eyes were closed. He was laying in bed. Yeah, laying in bed on his back, just very, very calm, very blissful. And uh, and I said, Ah, oh, Sasha, you know, we love you so much, and uh, and and we're here for you. And he was very quiet, no response. And I said, You know, you've given so much to the world. There's so many people who've grown so much with the compounds that you created, and are so grateful. No response. And I said, and you know, at our women's congress, we're going to give you a big shout out and a big hug and kiss from all the ladies there. And he squeezed my hand. <laughs> he was there. You know, he was waiting for his moment, right? He was, he was harboring his energy for the gesture that mattered. And, and for the communication that he wanted to give. And, and that's a lesson. He used his, his gifts and his energy wisely and in great service to the community and with great joy. So uh, I think that's a lesson for all of us, and I feel very fortunate to have known him. We have a little bit of his ashes here on the playa with us. And uh, if any of you are interested, perhaps we could take a walk over to the temple after this talk, and uh, and we'll show you where his shrine is in the temple, and you can pay your respects. I'd like to say one more thing. Um, we're serving tea in his honor tonight in the tea house. If you'd like to come and have a cup of tea with us and tell your favorite Sasha story, we'd love to hear it. We're also looking for tea servers. If you'd like to serve with us, we are looking for tea servers in the tea house. And we would like to toast him throughout the rest of the burn and, and remember him. So that's what I'd like to say. Thank you. Do we have anyone else here who wants to talk about Sasha in his memory? When I first learned of Sasha's passing, I, I cried harder than I've cried learning the passing of some of my family members. It was, and it wasn't, it wasn't sadness, it was just joy that somebody so beautiful can change the lives of so many people. It's so beautiful. And I guarantee you one thing, that right now he's the most, second only to Jesus, the most high-five person in heaven sitting on a plush velvet couch. But I have one question I, I would like to know. The, the distance of time between when he first made his lab and got in good with the DEA and when they actually, you know, went to raid his lab with the discovery of uh, the PCAL book? Yeah, more than 20 years. I'm not sure the exact time, but, but he was able to um, be a resource for their, all aspects of the community for multiple decades. It, it was a ma that was like a masterful act of how he, he was able to do that. Also, he had uh, plaques on his wall from the DEA in appreciation for his work because he would analyze, uh, you know, what are the chemicals in glassware they would uh, take from drug dealers instead. Then he would keep the glassware. So he was pretty amazing. And I think it was more like uh, when I knew him, he had this paper, 25 years on an ever-changing quest, and that was like, you know, 1985 or something. So he was like, his first mescaline experience was probably around 1960, I'm guessing, maybe 58. So, yeah, decades of working on this line before they shut him down. And the technicality they shut him down for was not keeping an accurate inventory of every single controlled substance he had. That was, that was their uh, technicality. Thank you. Hello. My name is Dr. Natalie, and I had the pleasure of first witnessing Sasha here on the playa in 2006, back in the days of Entheon Village, for those of you who may have been here. And at that time in my life, I was quite naive to the world of psychedelics. I was quite a novice. 
I had my first LSD experience here that year, which was altering, to say the least. But I remember being at Entheon Village and watching Sasha and Anne in the most beautiful, delicate space of love come onto the stage and speak. And I was just immediately impressed by the very palpable bond that's present between them and continues, and by the incredible wisdom that they had to share on all sorts of levels. And um, four years later, at the first Psychedelic Science Conference in 2010, I had the pleasure of um, chatting with Sasha about some manipulations on 2CB-type molecules. Prior to becoming a doctor, I was a pharmaceutical chemist, so I got to rap chemistry with him, which was really cool and really fun. And to see the musings of his mind and my mind and someone else came over and we just kind of nerded out on molecular structure, and it was awesome. And um, the next memories I have of him are at his home, um, having been invited to go out to Fourth of Julys and Easter's and birthdays. And um, at that point, he was in a, a, a less lucid state. And the last experience I had of being with him was at Easter this year. And I was um, taking an archetypal astrology class in a graduate program that I've just completed in San Francisco. And I was doing a, a project about um, Anne's life, and I was looking at her astrological birth chart and series of events throughout her life, including meeting and marrying Sasha in the backyard and the surprise Fourth of July um, picnic, as as George mentioned. And of course, how could you not look at Sasha's chart when you're looking at Anne's chart? And it was incredibly um, amazing to see in the astrology their work with MDMA specifically. It is it is in the stars, and it was so beautiful to bear witness to that. And about three days before I gave this presentation, I was at their house for Easter, and I got to talk with Anne about this presentation I was going to give and get some some details kind of sorted out. And my last memory of Sasha um, was going over and just, you know, kneeling down by his presence. And he was just sitting quietly in a chair. And I just knelt down by his side. And I watched what he was watching. And he was brilliantly thrilled and excited to see these two little girls running around. And you could just see this joy in his face by just witnessing these children play. And one of my dear friends came over and fed him some durian. And <laughs> and Sasha just started going, and someone came and took the durian out of his mouth. And I just, I just sat there, and I just started to weep. And I just felt, oh, my God, I'm so blessed to be in the presence of this beautiful man. And I just said to him, I said, thank you so much. And he just kind of smiled and shrugged his shoulders like, what are you even thanking me for? Didn't say anything. And I just got to just hold his hand and, yeah, just be with him for a moment. And that was about a month and a half before his passing. And when he passed, we had a, a shrine up at our house for a couple weeks honoring him. And I've been back out to the, the farm a couple times since then. And um, most recently had a fun time hanging out with Paul Daly and Nick Cozy, who are two of the amazing psychedelic chemists that are continuing on his work and um, there's a palpable energy that is um, still present from his presence but also missing in the lack of his physical presence and bless him thank you so let's see um I didn't know Sasha in his prime, but I've heard many a story. I knew him the past four years of my life, and I just wanted to give a shout-out to the legacy that he created, to the community that he created. Visiting the Shulgin Farm was just like visiting family, a really, really weird family reunion. <laughs> um, the last conversation that I had with him was also at the uh, Easter event that Natalie was talking about. And what I realized was that what stayed with him was being very into ladies, always, until the end. He was such a ladies' man. He would always kneel, kneel down and kiss your hand, very flattering. And also, um, I spoke Russian to him the last time that I saw him, 
which I'd been wanting to do for a while, but this time I, I knelt down, I sat down next to him, and, and I said, Kakdila, uh, how are you? And he said, huh. and suddenly he got this big smile on his face, and you knew that he was connecting, you knew that he was present and really excited. And he said, Harashua, which means good. And then he looked at me again, and he goes, Orchin Harashua, very good. So until the very last day, he was just, he was a rock star. He was loving life, and he had such a supportive, amazing community around him that that's still here, that's still supporting each other. At his memorial, it was so beautiful just to see everyone there and how big and strong and connected the whole crew is. So thank you, Sasha. Keep rocking out. Okay, this is a lesson. I don't want to bug anyone. This is a lesson on how not to ask someone the wrong question. So, anyways, in 2010, he was over at the Burning Man lecture, and so people are raising their hand. Where do I put the indole receptor? And he's like, over here. And so I, I asked him, just because I was curious, but it's not really his field. I said, what do you think about Woodrow seeds and LSA? And he was like, it's active. Right. I wish I would have asked him what other fenental means, what he thinks about the other fenental means that are in cactus besides mescaline, but, you know. Anyway, ask people the right questions when you have the opportunity. Um, I, I just want to add, add from what um, Irina said is that the, um, the memorial service to Sasha is online. I'm not sure how to find it, but, but maybe because I, I was just sent a URL, but I don't remember it. But um, if you do a Google search on it, you might be able to find it. It's just about an hour and a half, an hour, an hour and a half of all sorts of people offering tributes to Sasha. It's very um, um, worth seeing if you can. Also, if you search online, um, the Shulgans do accept donations for their farm and are and are looking to raise money to continue Sasha's research. So uh, please Google search. Uh, either Elysium Foundation or donate to Sasha Shulgin in order to uh, find those causes you can support. I think you can search for Shulgin Research Institute, Institute, and we think that a link to the memorial service is up on that site. And you can donate donate to the Shulgin Research Institute, which will continue to carry forward the work that Sasha did. I, I want to say something also about the Bohemian Grove. You know, we haven't mentioned that. I don't know if anybody knows what the Bohemian Grove is. It's a it's a playground for oligarchs, basically. The captains of the universe got together every year. And what I mean by that is like high government officials, you know, the Henry Kissingers of the world, you know, the captains of industry, the multimillionaires, the but but not just those folks. It was an interesting combination of like high level government and business people and artists and and, and good musicians. And they they they, they actors also a really a men's club. No ladies they would gather in this redwood grove every year and uh, they would form different camps, like we have theme camps, and they would just go from camp to camp, kind of having cocktail parties and playing music, and they did a lot of theater and drag, and it was just like a boys' camp, you know, that they got to do together. And, um, you know, I, I have a more than just a feeling, but a couple of unconfirmed reports that, uh, Sasha played a very interesting role in that community. Let's just think about that for a second. High-level government officials and artists, they also have a beautiful building in downtown San Francisco, Bohemian Grove Group. Every I'm pre- sorry, the Bohemian Club. Um, so, you know, high-level government officials, uh, artists, um business people, and here comes this chemist, this jolly chemist, and everyone's kind of in a, you know, off-the-record sort of event. I have a feeling that he took more than one very straight high government official on their first psychedelic journey, and perhaps that changed the world in ways that we don't even really fully know. 
but I have a good feeling that it made the world a different place than otherwise could have been. Uh, if you read Pical, actually, he talks about this. He doesn't name the Bohemian Grove specifically because there's a confidentiality thing about being a member. But he talks about the Owl Society or the Secret Club or something like this. And he talks about taking his low-calorie martinis to there. You know, he's like, uh, well, it's only this much liquid and it uh, doesn't add any weight to you at all. You know, and he would take that there and share it with people on appropriate occasions according to his own uh, completely fictional writings in the first half of Pical, which are all about people who are not named Sasha and Ann Shulgin, but who have other names and somehow, you know, they were inspired to write this book. So not only did he talk directly with the DEA, I think he partied with the DEA too. And they have some of the best drugs. <laughs> Anybody else have stories they want to share? Yep. Bruce? And the um, Paul Daly and Scott Badarki and a whole team of us had a final lunch with Sasha maybe about two weeks before he passed and and Sasha was at the lunch and it was a group meeting about creating a whole new cannabis technology organization and event and things like this and he was listening in and listening in we were all eating and and um, I you know to try to see if he kind of grokked it because this is an event to fund the Alexander Sasha Research Institute this is a serious uh, endeavor in his name and and we'd finished the lunch and I crouched down by him and I said Sasha we just we did something here to forward your research not necessarily with a uh, the drug of your choice but I think it'll capitalize uh, the continuation of your work and he turned to me with his toothy grin and said sounds great anybody else yeah uh. I'll just say something very briefly, uh, which is that one of my best Burning Man experiences was in 2006 when we brought Sasha and Ann to uh, the first Entheon Village. And Larry Harvey, who founded Burning Man, found out that Sasha was going to be on um, the property and he wanted to meet with him. And so I had a chance to go along with him. And it was just so incredible to hear the two of them sort of share psychedelic stories about how they'd been inspired by um, psychedelics and what they did, did with that as an outcome. So Sasha was, really has been to the heart of Burning Man in a lot of ways. Hello? Did I turn it on or off? Okay. Uh, I just wanted to add really quickly about donating to the Shulgans. T. Ferry wrote a really great post about this. I think that we all in our minds, before actually visiting the Shulgan farm and Shulgan lab, assume that it's this like super rich, expensive, big place with a lot of money. But really, it's very quite modest, the most modest thing you can even imagine. Um, there isn't a lot of money put into it. They had to sell a part of their property to help pay for Sasha's health. So donating to this cause is a really good idea, and everyone should do it. I also would like to give a shout-out to all the people who took care of Sasha at the end of his life. They were a really beautiful group of people. In addition to Anne and Wendy and Jason and the rest of the immediate family, Tanya and Greg Manning, who have been living with the Sasha, uh, Sasha and Ann Shulgin for years, really stepped up and were their uh, caretakers and guardians and friends. And we owe them a great debt. And, we, you know, we're all, if we're that lucky, we'll have really good guardians and caretakers and friends at the end of our lives. So I just wanted to send out some love to them. They are not on the playa with us this year, but I'm thinking about them a lot. He also had a group of Tibetans who were the most radiant people, oh my gosh, who took care of him at the end of his life. And when he died, they were so excited, you know, as Tibetan Buddhists are when somebody passes. They're like, isn't it great? He's moved on to another dimensional place. 
place. The wheel is turned, and we should celebrate, you know? They were really remarkable people and really kind of kept it all in perspective for everybody. You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. A few moments ago, Rick Doblin mentioned the fact that Sasha believed that information should be free, and that's why he shared all of his work with anyone who is interested in it. And if, uh, like me, you're an old-time hacker, well, you certainly remember that uh, that is also the hacker's mantra. Information wants to be free. So uh, I guess we can say that Sasha Shulgin was an open-source chemistry hacker. (laughs) And uh, as for the discussion about uh, Sasha and the Bohemian Club, I'd like to add a little bit here because his affiliation with that group has uh, caused the conspiracy theorists among us to speculate that it indicated a dark side of Sasha linking him to the CIA and other nefarious groups. (laughs) Well, uh, I've been fortunate to have read uh, a great deal of the personal correspondence between Sasha and Myron Stolaroff. And uh, interestingly, even though the uh, members of the Bohemian Club were not supposed to discuss what they did during their time together, well, Sasha wrote long and detailed accounts of his time there uh, in his letters to Myron. And uh, (laughs) I'm here to tell you that uh, Sasha always remained one of us. As you uh, already heard, it wasn't unusual for him to take some of his fellow campers on psychedelic voyages using some of his magic potions. And uh, those trip reports are not only interesting from an historical perspective, but they're also quite funny in some parts. (laughs) Like uh, the time that Sasha was tripping there at the Bohemian Club, fell down and got injured, and so when he went to the medical tent, he became the first camper that year to have his balls jiggled by a doctor, (laughs) thus winning that doctor a bet as to who would be the first to have his balls so jiggled that year. So, uh, you see, it wasn't all a deep, dark conspiracy going on there. Also, I I laughed at uh, Sasha's uh, comment once uh, concerning a performance of Peter and the Wolf that his uh, camp had staged. Uh, I think Sasha played the viola for it, and the narrator of the piece was Henry Kissinger. But according to Sasha, Kissinger was so bad at reading the script that he distracted from an otherwise great performance. (laughs) Oh boy, he had some really funny tales to tell about the Bohemian Club. Now also, uh, we heard Rick Doblin mention the fact that after Sasha had tested a new compound on himself, that he would then test it with a small group of about 12 people. And if you've been with us here in the salon for a while, you already know that one of the last members of that uh, small group is Myron Stoloroff's widow, Jean. Well, uh, Jean is a close friend of mine, and when I was editing this talk and heard Rick say that, I gave her a call to uh, let her know that the research work that she and the rest of the group did was still being recognized. Obviously, uh, she was pleased and uh, asked me to say hi to everyone here in the podcast. And uh, I want to thank the three people who took time to send her a card or a letter a while back when I uh, asked you to do that. You have no idea how much those cards meant to her. As you know, uh, Jean is now 88 years old and uh, living alone in her home in the high desert. And just to put those cards into perspective, Jean Jean was more excited about them than she was a week ago when uh, one day she encountered a rattlesnake on her patio and a day or so later watched uh, through her living room window as a black bear strolled through her yard. (laughs) What an amazing woman she is. Now, uh, since we are honoring the memory of Sasha Shulgin, who was one of the great scientists of our age, it seems like the right time to also bring up the fact that even though psychedelic mushrooms have been used by medicine women and men for ages, nonetheless, mushrooms are also medicine. And I know this uh, from first-hand experience because my wife uh, began the psilocybin end-of-life anxiety study with uh, Charlie Grobe. And uh, since then, as you know, research into the medicinal properties of magic mushrooms has been growing every year. And uh, this year, an event is being organized to highlight this fact and to bring it into a broader public awareness. I'm talking about the 920 Coalition, which is organizing dozens of events on September 20th, 2015, both in the United States and around the world. 
And these events are going to be focused on recent research into the role of psychedelic psilocybin mushrooms in our societies and healthcare systems. But uh, rather than listen to me talk about this, I'm going to let you listen to what Duncan Trussell has to say about it. The 920 Coalition, you can find them at 920coalition.org, is a new organization that is supporting events focused on new research about psilocybin mushrooms and its role in medicine and society. There is research being done all over the world right now that is showing that psilocybin has powerful medicinal benefits in anxiety reduction, overcoming depression, treating addiction. Uh, This is from Stephen Ross, uh, who is one of the scientists doing research on psilocybin. And this is from a great article that was written about in The New Yorker called The Trip Treatment. Uh, Cancer patients receiving just a single dose of psilocybin experienced immediate and dramatic reductions in anxiety and depression, improvements that were sustained for at least six months. This is something a lot of us already know. So I know that many of you guys out there are well aware of the fact that mushrooms seem to calibrate your soul in the direction of love. We all know that. But what's really exciting right now is that our own subjective experiences are being backed up by hard science. And that is incredible. And what that means is that in the same way, in different parts of the country, marijuana is becoming prescribable uh, and even purchasable just for recreational use, there is a very real possibility that the same thing could happen for psilocybin. And this is why the 920 Coalition is so important. Uh, This group is planning on uh, facilitating events on September 20th, 2015 at colleges and universities all over the country. Uh, They are collaborating with Students for Sensible Drug Policy, and they wanted to advertise on this podcast to put the word out that if you're a student and you want to host one of these events, please contact them by sending an email to hello at 920coalition.org. You can also visit their website. That's 920coalition.org. So if you're in college right now and you want to do some incredible service for the universe and for the psychedelic community and you feel inclined to doing this kind of volunteer work, here is a great organization for you to get in touch with. You guys know that this is so important. You know that you know that there is nothing more ridiculous and absurd than the fact that psilocybin is placed in the same category is PCP. It's ridiculous. There's nothing more insane than the fact that if you have in your pocket a fungus that enhances your ability to love, that grows off of cow shit, you can go to jail or get fined hundreds of thousands of dollars. That's insane. People have to fight tooth and nail to get these kinds of draconian drug policies transformed and you can be one of those people who joins this very important movement that's happening all over the world to reform and change drug policies that are not keeping us safe but are actually slowing down the spiritual evolution of our species. Please go to 920coalition.org that's 9 coalition.org check them out if you feel called to work with these people no matter no matter what you think you can do even if you can just help connect them with people at your college or whatever your particular skill set happens to be this kind of stuff uh, happens through collaboration so it doesn't matter even if you maybe you don't even know what you can do just email them, 920coalition.org, and let them know that you would like to help out. There's also, if you don't feel like volunteering or uh, you don't, maybe you're not at, at college right now, but you want to donate, if you go to 920coalition.org, there will be a, there's a donate button there too, so you can chip in in that way. Uh, we live in an incredible era right now, and thanks to social networking, uh, drug laws and policies that formerly would have been impossible to change 
we can now change, but we can only do it if we all work together. And if we support in whatever way we can organizations like the 920 Coalition who are working really hard to try to uh, create a world where people can ingest psilocybin safely and without fear of being thrown into a dungeon surrounded by murderers just because you wanted to connect with your family more. It's ridiculous. 920coalition.org. Go visit them. They have sponsored this podcast. Why not support them? All the links will be located at duncantrussell.com in the comments section of the podcast. As you can tell, I lifted that bit from Duncan Trussell's podcast. So uh, thank you very much, Duncan. And rather than me repeating all of those links in today's program notes, I'm suggesting that uh, you surf on over to duncantrussell.com. That's uh, D-U-N-C-A-N-T-R-U-S-S-E-L-L.com. And uh, check out uh, not just those links, but his podcast as well. Of course, uh, since so many of our fellow Saloners are also Joe Rogan fans, my guess is that, uh, well, you're probably already listening to Duncan, too. But getting back to Duncan's call to action for volunteers for the 920 Coalition, well, I hope that you will look into volunteering yourself. As these uh, podcasts progress this year, I'm going to be bringing you more and more student speakers from events that are now being organized at many U.S. campuses. Uh, you have no idea how gratifying it is for an old guy like me, you know, somebody who came from the era where you couldn't even discuss marijuana on your college campus, to uh, where we're now seeing uh, student psychedelic organizations springing up everywhere. And uh, by the way, uh, whomever winds up organizing at uh, UCLA or in the Los Angeles area, please let me know because uh, yesterday when Dr. Charlie Grobe stopped by for a visit, I told him about the 920 Coalition and uh, he said that as long as he was in town that day, he'd be pleased to participate in one of your events, as will I for any event that gets scheduled in San Diego County. So uh, let's leave it at that for now, and right now you should surf on over to 920coalition.org and uh, get on their mailing list. And uh, just so that you know, I'm going to be back here in two days to celebrate the official end of our first ten years of podcasting. And uh, can you guess who's going to be my featured speaker? Well, for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be careful out there, my friends. <laughs>